0: This episode's part of a special feature series on New York City and is a co-presentation with the Museum of the City of New York with generous support from the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. Find us at yourhometown.org or on your favorite podcast app.
1: distinctly remember from the living room of our apartment that you could see one of the runways at LaGuardia, but you couldn't see enough enough of it to actually see the planes land. So in my child's mind, I just thought, okay, there are planes crashing there all the time. I just saw them approach and sort of glide over the runway, but never actually saw them land.
0: Where did you grow up? is a question we're all asked, a lot. But the answer is never as simple as a place on a map, is it? It's about the kid inside of us and what happened to them there before we met the world and the world met us. I'm Kevin Burke, and this is Your Hometown. My guest is Glenn Ligon, an artist whose work has been in all the major museums you can think of, including the White House when the Obamas lived there. He's worked in so many different ways, but what I'm drawn to is this gift that Glenn has for taking materials that already exist in our world, in history, literature, old magazines, photos, ads, and turning them into pieces of art that feel entirely new and different. When you stand before Glenn Ligon, you know he's gonna show you a new way of looking at the past and the present. How can we see him better, I wondered, through the lens of childhood. As a kid, growing up in the South Bronx in the 1960s and 70s, Glenn was seeing a lot every day and not just the planes coming and going at LaGuardia. His commute to the private school he attended on the Upper West Side took longer than a lot of those flights. We're talking an hour and a half each way on a bus and subway from the first grade to the 12th grade. As you'll hear, his mother made going to that private school possible. And it wasn't easy. It involved a lot of sacrifices and some pretty big risks. A commute is one thing. Where it takes you, another. How had all this changed the landscape for Glenn and his family? Where would Glenn most feel at home, outside and inside, wherever he was in New York? Where would he feel safe, or watched, or like a stranger? And how does a city like New York, with its layer upon layer of construction, of class and culture, come to define not just the literal paths between here and there as we grew up, but the existential ones? As you listen, pay close attention every time Glenn's mother comes up to what he learned from her the history he met through her, and to where their relationship landed in his own journey of becoming an artist. To set the scene a little bit here, until he was about 13 or 14 years old, Glenn and his family lived in a place called The Forest Projects. It was on Trinity Avenue in the South Bronx. It was a two-bedroom apartment on the 11th floor, hence the plains. Glenn shared a room with his older brother, Tyrone. What was it like, I
1: asked him. When you entered the room, that was my side. Um, and it just meant that I had half a room to put up posters or that we did have a fish tank in that room, which was mostly my responsibility.
0: Would we have seen a contrast between your posters and your brothers? Uh,
1: The contrast would have been that my brother was more of a sports guy, Mm -hmm. so... I think he would have had basketball posters and things like that. Also, our musical tastes were different, so he was more into hip-hop and rap. I mean, we grew up in South Bronx, so I guess I was by default. Although my mother was very against um, us going outside when there were neighborhood block parties and things like that. You could hear them? Oh, yeah, you could hear them, but she just thought they were hoodlums scratching up records, so why were we going outside to watch people scratch up perfectly good records. So even though I was in the midst of the South Rock Mm -hmm. in the 60s and 70s, I missed, you know, the birth of hip-hop. By, you know, the time I was in fifth or sixth grade, I was interested in books, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, So that's one thing my mother did, you know, ridiculous sneakers for hundreds of dollars no (laughs) any book we wanted yes Uh, famous family story you know that involves reading and writing Mm -hmm. Um, when I was in kindergarten doing an alphabet book uh, and the principal of the school calling my mother because I filled in words for the entire alphabet Instead of for the four letters of the alphabet that my teacher assigned, which was supposed to take up the entirety of a class, 45-minute class, to fill in four words. And she said, the principal said, well, you know, your kids are really bright, both of them. But, you know, this alphabet book, I had to look up some of the words that are in it. Really? Oh, my goodness. The principal of the school said this. Um And you should really think about getting your kids into private school. But my mom thought, well, you know, I live in a housing project across the street from this public school. So I don't have extra money to do that. Uh, But she said something that one of my homeroom teachers said made her so mad that she determined to do it. My homeroom teacher said, your kids may be bright here, but in a real school, I suspect they would just be average. And that made my mother so furious that she decided that she'd rather us be average in a real school than given up on in kindergarten and first grade in this public school across the street from my house. So that's when she literally called around and found the school that offered the most scholarship money. I mean, I don't think she knew it was the most liberal school in the city (laughs) at the time, but... um, (laughs) But I suspect that that was one of the reasons they gave the scholarship money, because they were committed to uh, having an integrated school, well, marginally integrated, um, but more integrated than many of the other private schools in the city at the time. And also because it was a school, the name was Walden, that was committed mm-hmm. to the civil rights movement. Yes, and indeed. So, okay. Andrew Goodman had gone there. And, yes, exactly. Uh, pretty
0: remarkable. And mm. your brother, it affected him too. So you both went.
1: Right. And well, because they had had him out in the hallways, they basically invented a job for him called milk monitor. So he literally was out in the hallways doing God knows what, because he had outgrown his first grade lessons oh, so I quickly. Um, so
0: how did this get it rolled out to you?
1: I'm sure it was terrifying. I mean, I have no memory of, you know, I totally blotted that out because I'm sure I was terrified.
0: Mingle with the New Yorkers and other visitors and you will find yourself swept along on an endless tide of humanity, moving along at an exciting tempo. People, people, people. A concentration of hundreds of thousands always on the go. A modern concerto, ever the same, ever changing. Moving.
1: Exciting, always something new, pleasurable, memorable. So from first grade to 12th grade, I left the neighborhood every school morning to go to the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I literally got on a bus and a train for an hour and a half to go to this private school. And I do remember it had consequences. Like when Co-op City in the Northeast Bronx Mm -hmm. opened up, one of my relatives was, you know, went we went to the meetings. I remember going to the meetings with my Aunt Rose and she was going to move in there and my mom just decided she couldn't afford it if we were going to this private school. Wow. So that was a huge thing. This was a wealthy private school. So, yes. you know, I remember one of the many courses I signed up was for was uh, an art course and that involved going to galleries. So it's the first time i had been to Soho, you know, first time I had brown rice. But one of the things we did on that trip was go two blocks from the school to uh, someone's duplex apartment, and uh, which was full of art. Um, and in the bathroom, I remember an abstract drawing, but it was signed to the diamonds, which is the family. Uh, they were art dealers. Uh, from Bill. And much later I, reg- I realized, like, oh, Bill as in de Kooning, which is in the bathroom because the Leger mural, the Picasso's, the Jackson Pollock were in the living room. <laughs> now, this is the kid whose family we're visiting, his name Mike Diamond. Now, Mike Diamond is Mike D. Of course. the Beastie, Beastie Boys. <laughs>
0: Think about those subway rides. Those long subway rides um, from from your from your house uh, from your neighborhood to to the Upper West Side. What stands out? What are you seeing in your mind?
1: Uh, I didn't want to be in my brother's shadow, so mm. we would leave the house together and go to the bus stop. But I would wait for the bus after the one my brother got on. So we essentially arrived at school five or ten minutes later. You know, I arrived five or ten minutes later, but my mother never knew this because we would leave the house together. She'd probably be horrified. Who's oh, the... no. She would have been totally horrified. Yeah. yeah. And,
0: and it was your decision as the younger brother to do that?
1: Yeah. Because I was in his shadow of, you know, in my head. Um, my mother says at some point she stopped giving me his hand-me-downs because I said to her that when I wore them, I didn't feel like myself.
0: What stays with you from those journeys?
1: I do remember one day, I must have been in third or fourth grade, getting to the bus stop, and I didn't have my pass. And the bus driver said to me, that's all right, you get it to me the next time. You look like a rich kid. And thinking about it now, I was getting on the bus at 163rd Street and Trinity Avenue in the middle of the South Bronx. And the bus driver says to me, you look like a rich kid. <laughs> Bizarre. Yeah, <laughs> And let it- me on the bus for free. I don't know if I was so conscious of what that meant. I just knew that Upper West Side was a quote-unquote white neighborhood. But now that I think about it, that wasn't even true. Uh, when I went to Walden... Uh, we had karate classes. The karate dojo was on Columbus Avenue and 88th Street. Okay. But the school made the karate teacher come to Walden, which was on an 88th Street in Central Park West, because Columbus Avenue at that moment was considered dangerous. So it was too dangerous, quote-unquote.
0: It's one avenue over. One block. Yeah, one block. It was
1: literally one block away for these mostly white, <laughs> sure. private school kids to go to Columbus Avenue. So we made the karate teacher come to us. And he just thought, bunch of spoiled private school kids. So I think the first lesson we had, he said, we're going to go outside. But we were in the gym in our karate clothes and bare feet. And he's like, no, we're not putting on your shoes. We're going to go outside. And he made us run around the block in our bare feet. Just a way to say, like, you're tougher than you think, but uh-huh. also kind of fuck you to the parents yes. of the school. Your
0: parents split up when you were very young. And so I wanted to just ask you how that break shaped your world and your sense of place and... and of sense of presence and absence
1: as a kid? I mean, many reasons my parents split up, but part of it was over um, what kind of education we were going to have. You know, my father was supposed to be paying child support, and a lot of that was going to private schools, and he just didn't believe in them, you know? (laughs) So that became a contentious thing in their marriage or their divorce Mm -hmm. or separation. Actually, it's separation. They were never actually... Formally divorced. I do remember actually going to the courts in the Bronx with her really and, um, to enforce the to enforce child the child support oh, wow. um, Yeah, he had other kids. So <laughs> that was part of the issue is that he had other children to support outside of uh, My brother and I who were older than you or younger. There were a lot of them were like five or six of them wow. um so, but we were the ones that kind of worked out, in quotes, <laughs> um, which I guess meant that we didn't ask him for money. My brother and I were, you know, when my mother got exasperated, she would say, go talk to your father about this.
0: Where was he in relation to your, to your house?
1: Um, he moved up to Soundview into uh, an apartment complex that I believe was maybe a co-op sort of near the Bruckner Expressway. Okay. And that seemed rather glamorous. I mean, my father was a bit of an estete. So he had, um, because he worked for General Motors and had an employee discount, he had a Cadillac, which he was very proud of. Um, and his apartment, too, was very bachelor pad. You know, so red shag carpeting, which I remember him Proudly raking as we would end our visits with him, and he was going out to drive us home. He would rake the carpet.
0: I don't think I've ever. I don't recall having seen one of those, but I can understand. If it's shaggy, you'd need to. Yeah, you need to. Vacuum wouldn't do the job.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. So when you were in those two different spaces, did it feel like different worlds to you? Even though these, this is your mom and your dad.
1: Yeah, um, you know, my mom was. If you're raising two kids by yourself, mm-hmm. essentially, you eventually have to give in <laughs> to, you know, especially two boys. And so her attempts at decorating and things like that uh, had to hold up to our childhood, my brother and I. And not that we were wild kids, but we were just kids.
0: Thinking a little bit about your, about your mom, her jobs are interesting that she has in New York. I, I was fascinated when I was reading about them in terms of the Goldwater Hospital on Roosevelt Island and the Museum of uh, Natural History on uh, the West Side and then the Bronx Psychiatric Center. Those are all different places. And I was wondering how you sort of met the city through her eyes and the stories that she would tell if she told them when you were a kid, kind of the places that she's moving in.
1: Uh, she grew up on a farm in south carolina and moved to the city with an aunt uh, who ran a fish store in harlem so her memories of being in the city early on or of harlem Mm -hmm. and uh, walking the streets of harlem on new year's eve but being in a church at midnight By the time I knew what Harlem was, I couldn't imagine being out all night in Harlem, you know, because the Harlem I knew was a place that my relatives had moved out of. And did
0: did she ever, did you ever
1: see her at work? I remember um, my school ended at three and I would take the train up to Bronx Psychiatric because her shift ended around four. So I would sort of get there right around the time her shift was ending. And we'd go to the Woolworths in Westchester Square to have grilled cheese sandwiches, <laughs> uh, which is where also I bought all the plants that took over her bedroom, but that's another <laughs> story. Um, and, but Bronx Psychiatric at that point had some wards that were called open wards, I believe the term was, which meant that the patients could go out during the day for rehabilitation, or some had jobs or to visit family. So in the walk from the hospital, Westchester Square, invariably, my mother would run into somebody and have these, to my adolescent mind, long, boring conversations with someone. But I realized that I couldn't tell the difference between uh, if it was, I couldn't tell, like, if it was someone she worked with or someone that was on the ward. So I invented this game called patient or employee. So as Mm -hmm. they were talking, I would try to guess if it was a patient of the hospital or an employee. And I was never very good at it. So (laughs) I always got confused. (laughs) Um, But I realized in a way that was, you know, much, much later. Actually seeing images of Diana Arbus. She took Mm -hmm. a lot of photographs at... Uh, mental hospitals and seeing those images it sort of triggered my memories of that game patient and employee Mm -hmm. and i thought oh the reason i couldn't tell the difference is because she talked to them the same way wow and so (laughs) they were the same for her
0: understand that growing up, your brother, Taron, um was the social one. You mentioned he liked sports. He was more into the music of the neighborhood, that sounds like, uh, that was emerging. And you were more of a homebody. You liked being inside. And to the point where your mother would have to send you out and say, you know, you have to at least go out for an hour and play. You cannot be in all the time.
1: I think my mom just thought, you know, I needed to be well-rounded. And being well-rounded meant... I think even though she didn't say that having black friends because I was going to a private school that had Mm -hmm. mostly white kids Mm -hmm. so that was maybe her unstated agenda but it was also just some idea about masculinity and boys go out to play and your brother goes out to play why can't you so when I became old enough to realize that I had other priorities, like I'd rather read a book than go outside and run around. Though, you know, it's not like I never went outside, but when I became old enough to realize (laughs) that reading was super important to me, I'd rather just do that than be outside. So she did that thing that adults can do, which is order you to do something. But I took her at her words. You should go outside for an hour and play. So I would go down to the base of our building and there's a maintenance worker area in that building that had a time clock. And I would sit and watch that time clock for one hour and then go back upstairs. And then sometimes she would say, you haven't been out enough, go back downstairs. So that's when I also realized that adults were not fair. Stick to their words. But also, you know, this was the South Bronx in the 70s, so there was a certain risk to being outside, you know. I just, my head was in books, you Mm -hmm. know, that that was a way of traveling. I didn't really need to be outside in a certain way. So I saved all my friend energy for school and didn't really have much of it left over for the neighborhood. You know, my brother is much more social in that way. So, in many more, he knew many more people around. And, but it just was not so interesting to me. Also, you know, like by that time, I knew I was gay, and I feel like there was a kind of division about what I wanted to do, you know, with my life mm-hmm. versus what the what being in the streets was, you know, like athletics and playing tag and. You know, all of that was, yeah, I could do it, but it wasn't where my head was, really. You may leave and go to Halimafag, but my slow drag will bring you back. Well, you may go, but this will bring you back. I bet in the country would I move to town. I'm a Tolo shaker from my head on down. Well, you may go. But this will bring you back.
0: One of the pieces that you've quoted from in your work is a 1920 essay by Zora Neale Hurston, which she talks about the fact that she was most conscious of her her race and her blackness when she was thrown against a sharp background, a, 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 a sharp white background. And she gives Barnard as her example of that. Was Walden that for you?
1: Yes, because I think predominantly it was white kids It became more integrated in the upper grades, mm-hmm. but in the lower grades, predominantly white kids, um, and predominantly well-to-do white kids who lived in the neighborhood. Um, so there was always this sense of, you know, separation, you know, they weren't coming to my house, you know, um. I was more off than not going to their house. But in a sense, the school was their house, you know. You know, there was a kid who was always late to school. And I thought, how can you be late to school? You live around the corner, you know, (laughs) literally (laughs) around the corner. He was always late. And I just thought, okay, because it's just, you know.
0: (laughs) It's like his backyard. What would you say, again, thinking about Zora Neale Hurston's quote, what was that for your mother?
1: Uh... I think the problem of of sending a child to a school like that is inevitably the child's experiences diverge from the parents. My mom didn't finish high school. She got an equivalency degree. She had to work early on. so at a certain point I realized like my experiences, you know, going to this wealthy private school were things that she couldn't help me with. You know, some things she could help me with, moral guidance, you know, sense of right and wrong. Yes, she had all of that down. But just on some of the day-to-day stuff that went on in a school like that, and the experience that I had. They were not her experience, you know. And so I kind of had to figure stuff out on my own a lot. Now, one could argue that's a good thing for a kid to learn, to figure out stuff on their own. But it also meant that a lot of things that I was going through were just my things, you know. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't discuss them, really.
0: And in terms of answering these questions for yourself, was it really an inner journey for you or did you find mentors? Did you find people that you did confide in?
1: Um, My English teacher, Marty Sternstein, he's the one that had the after school poultry classes at his house. So that was my excuse to be in Greenwich Village, you know, after school. and I would slow walk myself back to the subway because, you know, I was in the middle of like, you know, one of the gayest neighborhoods in New York and I needed to soak that up.
0: What are, we, what are your, again, visual sensory memories of, of that neighborhood at that time?
1: Well, just that there were gay men on the street, you know, and there certainly weren't that, you know, there certainly were gay men in the Bronx, but they weren't open like that, you know. There was no gay men hangout the way there was at the Christopher Street Piers, you know, Um, or just being, you know, affectionate with one another, you know, in a public way. That just didn't happen in the South Bronx, you know. That was dangerous, (laughs) Um, so to be in an environment where that was okay, I mean, it scared the shit out of me, I think, because I was just coming to grips with my own sexuality mm-hmm. then, but it was also important, you know, um, to see it, to have that experience. I mean, not something I went home and told my mother about.
0: And what about, you mentioned going down to the village, to the to the poetry, uh teacher that had poetry in the village. How did you feel yourself changing there or did you
1: I wasn't really aware of myself in that world as a possibility you know like being gay Mm -hmm. you know that came really in high school um
0: and you mentioned before that you were on on one level scared of it because it was so different I mean it partly was exciting but it was also you said scary
1: yeah well this was a moment when like I was nervous to go into Barnes and Noble and look in the gay section. <laughs> mm-hmm. Back when they had gay sections, they probably still do, but I don't go to bookstores anymore. Really, <laughs> not like not ones like that, at least. Um, so that was a big thing. Am I going to go to the gay section? just to look at the books, you know, became a choice and who's going to see me in a neighborhood that nobody would have known me or cared, there's still this internalized sense of, you know, surveillance, Mm -hmm. you know, am I allowed to look, am I allowed to look at boys, am I, you know, like that was internal.
0: As you mentioned, so much time inside with books and those were your portals to other worlds and you love to make things. What, what were you aspiring to, Glenn? I mean, before you could name it, what was the feeling? What were you going for? What were you reaching for?
1: Um, I yeah. just knew that there were things I was interested in, mm-hmm. art and architecture. Mm-hmm. I didn't really know any artists. Um, my mother said the only artists she'd ever heard of were dead. And she, <laughs> you know and Matisse, yes. and they were in fact dead at that point. Uh, so there wasn't a role model in my family to be an artist. It didn't seem to be something that made sense. Uh, but I also was interested in architecture, and so that became the default. You know, it's like oh, I want to be an architect. It was a profession versus being an artist, which was just an aspiration or something. Yeah. But I was too stubborn for that. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> duistique physique du neige qui m'avait en Amérique causé un douleur presque oublié et combien différent les terrains manques miraculeux au anfinal aux yeux de ville de village excellence certainment je veux avec la couleur de goudron ou le texture de fil de fer du canton
0: in his essay stranger in the village James Baldwin wrote about his experiences as the first known black man to enter a small village high up in the Swiss mountains. Glenn made art out of Baldwin's piece, transposing the text onto panels with oil sticks and coal dust. It made me wonder, where did Glenn most feel like a stranger in his hometown?
1: Well, um, certainly in that transition from home to school, Mm -hmm. um, because uh my emotional life kind of centered on school pretty early on. Um, so maybe in some ways I was more estranged at home, I was <laughs> at school. But that caused some issues too, because most of my friends in school were white, because most of the kids were white. Mm-hmm. And so there was inevi- inevitably some, you know, misunderstandings and... Not so much with the kids, but more with their parents, you know, what they imagined black kid from the ghetto to be and the sort of limit of their imaginations. But I think I also kind of, you know, in a way sheltered my white friends from my home experience, you know, because I just knew that they weren't going to share it, you know, <laughs> they weren't coming over. And, um, frankly, their, you know, experience seemed more appealing, you know, despite the fact that I was missing out on the birth of hip hop, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, which to this day, friends are like, Oh my God, you grew up in the Bronx. So you must've like, no, not one single like party in a playground. <laughs> no, like basement jam, you know?
0: (laughs) Sticking with that Baldwin essay, one of the really striking lines in it that that Resonated with me and made me think of your work too. Is he says that people are trapped in history and history is trapped in them. When, as a kid growing up and an adolescent teenager, did you feel most the presence of the past in your world, in your physical spaces, or in the people that you were around?
1: Oh, I probably felt that most when I was visiting my cousins and my grandfather and grandmother in Washington. Okay. Because they, were kind of a gathering place for my extended family, some of whom who still lived in South Carolina, mm-hmm. Virginia. My father's is from Virginia, my mom's family from South Carolina. So my contact with those relatives from the South was through my grandfather and grandmother's house in Washington, mm-hmm. but also because they had grown up there. So the stories that I would hear... Being around my aunts and uncles um, were often about their childhood, but I would hear those, you know, in this kind of, I don't know, nostalgia, but just matter of fact. My mother's saying, like, oh yeah, we would, you know, get an orange for Christmas. And I said, oranges? She's like, orange, you know? Wow. Sure, cropping family. Yeah. An orange was a big deal, you know? You got mm-hmm. one at Christmas. Mm-hmm. Oh as a physician's aide in a hospital and sent me and my brother to a private school. My niece, my brother's daughter, is getting her PhD at Duke in anthropology. So that's the trajectory. But mostly my relatives I saw in urban context, so in D.C. So even though they were telling me stories about growing up on the farm, it wasn't real Mm -hmm. to me Um, until I went Back there, family reunion, probably when I was 14 or 15, we took a bus from Washington down to South Carolina and stayed in the motel, all my relatives, (laughs) and we went to the site of a church they had gone to when they were young, and suddenly... um, in bishopsville south carolina or one of of these little towns maybe wasn't even a town Um, and there was the remains of this church you know wooden church and suddenly everybody had little jars and they were digging up soil from around this church and i realized like oh they my mother hated being on that farm but she was still connected to that land
0: Now one of the things I also wanted to ask you is because you are a visual artist and one of the giants of our time in terms of art, the, the, the experience of memory in the mind's eye of an artist as someone who is expressing yourself in a visual way, um, what your experience of memory is like itself, particularly of childhood.
1: Well, yeah, I'm, I'm not very good at, you know... Dates, that's my brother. He's very good at remembering, you know. But I do remember emotions, yeah, Yeah. things that stand, or how it felt, you know. um, Yeah, just how it felt, like, missing New York so much when I was in summer camp, you know, in the Adirondacks that I would literally just start walking down the road as if I could walk home, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, lots of other things. I must have had fun sometime that summer. You know, I was there for months, but yeah. I remember that part of it much more clearly wow. than the other parts of it.
0: And if you think <clears throat> about your own personal map of the city at that time when you were growing up and the emotional overlay of it, where where would you say, for example was your happiest place
1: i had relatives that lived in the north bronx um 227th street i guess that's wakefield uh is the neighborhood uh it was my aunt celestine and her son lived in the apartment above as a two-family house and they had a dog um so it's, you know, relatives with a dog and a backyard <laughs> in a two-story house. You know, now the journey up there was actually fun in a way because it was getting out of my neighborhood. But it was often uh, we would take the Third Avenue L because it was still existing yeah. back then when I was a kid, which is a scary train. You <laughs> know, uh, besides being old, the tracks were very windy, uh, just mm. scary. But uh, I liked being out of my neighborhood. I liked playing with dogs in the backyard. I liked that you could play out on the street, you know. That's where I supposedly learned to ride a bike, though it didn't ever take, you know. My cousin had a bike, you know. (laughs) My uncle tried to teach me. It didn't really work, but, you know.
0: And on that map, what would you say is the most haunted place for you?
1: I don't know if it's a place, particularly it's a memory. Mm -hmm. Coming from Washington back to New York, my Uncle James was driving. We drove through the intersection of 116th Street and 8th Avenue. And this must have been late 60s, early 70s. And there were dozen if not a hundred people out on the street and on the corner and my memory is that my Uncle James stopped the car and got out and left the door open and went over to someone and got into something with this person and then got back in the car and kept driving and I figured out later that That was where the open-air drug market was. And he'd seen his son out there among all the dealers and junkies. Now, my brother is there. He might have a different version of the story, but I literally remember him leaving the car door open. (laughs) I mean, it says something also about, like, you know... I said earlier about the sort of class trajectory mm-hmm. in my family. You know, I have cousins that went to prison. I have cousins that went to college. You know, others that just had worked for the post office. You know, lived <laughs> in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. It's all the same family. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Nobody, no man, and no woman is precisely what they think they are. Love yeah. is where you find it, and you don't know where you don't know where it will carry you. And it is a terrifying thing, love. It is the only human possibility, but it's terrifying. And a man can fall in love with a man. A woman can fall in love with a woman. There's nothing nothing anybody can do about it. It's not in the province of the law.
0: Hmm.
1: There's nothing you do with the church. Hmm. And if you lie about that, if you lie about that, you lie about everything. Hmm. And no one has a right to try to tell another human being whom he or she can or should love
0: one of the other baldwin essays i wanted to ask you about was in 85 he he wrote a piece uh later in his life he died two years later called here be dragons Um, and in it he talks about how the american idea of sexuality is really rooted in the american idea of masculinity Mm -hmm. and i was just going to ask you how you were seeing masculinity performed in your in your immediate world and how it impacted you and how you how you related to it
1: well it was complicated you know i had uncles who were you know rough guys you know uh some had been in prison you know some were just kind of like you know sit down in the chair and the leg could come up and you'd see the holstered gun around the ankle um my dad was a bit of a playboy so there was that version of it mm-hmm. though he worked for um a uh, numbers parlor that was run by the mafia in the Bronx.
0: This is before or alongside of General Motors? Had
1: it- alongside. He worked at this pizza parlor uh, that was close to our house. So we'd come to the yeah. pizza parlor and say, is "Clarence, you know, is Clarence in today?" And some large Italian man <laughs> would say, "No, he's not in today." With that kind of voice, "He's you know, not in today." And i like, "Well, his car's outside." No, he didn't come in today, which we found out later that was code for they had been raided that morning by the police, and his mob lawyers hadn't bailed him out yet. Wow. Um, but you did not
0: really know this as a kid. That's something you found out later?
1: I knew something was up because I never had good pizza. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it's New York. It's the but I didn't there. know it was
1: a numbers part of uh-huh. But I realized a couple of things. One is, you know, when I was old yes. enough to talk to my father about it, it yeah. was just extra money you know he worked at the general motors plant but he had all these other kids and lifestyle he had sports so he needed another job Mm -hmm. and everybody i knew played the numbers in fact he once when i was in college um, he's long dead but when i was in college he had the first of many heart attacks and he um I went to visit him in the hospital, and he was all agitated, and I was like, oh, well, you know, is, that something, is it something the doctor said, or what's the prognosis? He's like, no, I owe this guy some money. I was like, who? Dizzy. Dizzy. W- w- how much money you owe him? I was like, $300. I was like, okay, I'll go pay Dizzy. Like, well, where's Dizzy work? Up at the club. I was like, what club? You know, the pizza parlor. You know. <laughs> The Numbers Club, you know? Uh-huh. I was like, okay, I'll go pay Dizzy. I'll go on the weekend. No, you got to go sooner than that. Compounds interest daily. And Dizzy was a loan shark who was attached to this Numbers parlor. And the same Italian guys are there. And I was like, where's Dizzy? Oh, he's out, he's out in his car. What, what's the car? It's a Cadillac. It's Fox <laughs> around the corner. So, Dizzy, a very nice guy, so I give him his money and he's like, Oh, how's your father doing? I was like, yeah, He's doing better. I think he's probably going to get out in a couple of weeks. I really should go down there and visit him, you know, Dizzy says to me. And I was like, No, please don't go
0: <laughs> visit
1: my father in the hospital. He just had a heart attack. Yeah, it was a heart attack. You he don't need to see huge numbers running loan shark. But also, Dizzy had several fingers on his right hand missing, like the middle oh, fingers. So I didn't ask him about it then. So I was just like, hmm, hmm, Lone shark with missing fingers. Okay, you know. And then Dizzy is like, well, how's, you know, how's your grandma doing? I'm like, how do you know my grandmother? And I was like, she's fine. <laughs> Hadn't been in New York in decades, but she's fine. So I go back to visit my father, and I was like, I paid Dizzy. And I was like, what's well, the story? It must not be a very good loan shark if he's got missing fingers. So he's like, oh, no, 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 that happened in a plant accident. He worked at General Motors with me. And I was like, oh, so how does he know my grandmother? He's like, he knows your grandmother because your grandmother plays the numbers. Like, Dizzy was at my wedding. Mm-hmm. We've I've known him for 40 years. And I was like... Oh, this is not criminal activity. This is just like extra money. They don't see it as criminal. Because your grandmother plays numbers, your mom plays numbers. (laughs) (laughs) New York stories. Right.
0: (sighs) On the streets of the Bronx is where I want to be. Standing on the corner Singing good old harmony You're seeing the, the, you mentioned the guy in the pizza parlor saying he's not here today. Not what you were trying to emulate and trying to be.
1: Yeah, but also I was getting my masculinity from my mother too. Oh, and the same old. Well, because she was my role model. Mm-hmm. Like she was the one that lived at home. Yeah. So as much as she said, "Go talk to your father about that," I knew that she was the final authority. Oh. And so my, you know, sense of the world, how to move in the world, was coming from her. So she taught me how to be a man, basically. Yeah. You know, more. She had more influence than you know my. Gun-strapping uncles, you know. And, and
0: for her, what did being a man mean to
1: her? Um, responsibility, yeah. working. You know, mm-hmm. I always had an after-school job. You know, I made my own money. You know, uh, being truthful. You know, mm-hmm. um, being kind. Being, you know, those were her values. And yeah. So those, that's what was imparted. You know. Also, I think, you know, it didn't, that sort of, you know, not them, but any of my relatives were thuggish. I mean, my right. father, you know, uh, had paintings of mine in his house, you know. And you've <laughs> said that he was very hardworking too. Yeah. Okay. He, he, like, he missed a day of work at General Motors because when he was driving up to the plant one day, he didn't feel well. If you made a left turn, you went to the General Motors plant. This was in Terrytown mm-hmm. on the highway. If you made a left turn, you went to the General Motors plant. If you made a right turn, you went to the Terrytown hospital. He made a right turn and had a heart attack in the parking lot. So that's why he missed work that day. Otherwise, never missed a day of work. Yeah.
0: So, that's, that's,
1: so that's, that's, that was there too, that yeah. kind of ethic. He made my brother miss my high school graduation because my brother was working at the General Motors plant. And that was his shift. And he's just like, you're not missing your shift. Wow. (laughs) My father is
0: hardcore. And so thinking (laughs) about how hard both of your parents worked and sort of the steeliness of your mom too, um, when you mentioned that you were drawn to art as a career and and she mentioned that she'd only known dead artists, you know, um, what did you think... What's her expectation of you? What journey was she placing you on when she sent you, do you think, to Walden? And what did she expect of you? And... Uh,
1: I just, I think she just expected me to be middle class. I don't think yeah. it really mattered. I mean, she uh-huh. said, you know, kind of, I don't want you to be an artist. And not so many words, except right. I'm the only artist. She just didn't know anything about it, so right. it didn't make any sense to her. But when I said I wanted to be an architect, she was like, great, you know, that sounds like... The, I, can understand that, you know. Um, but I think she just, I don't think in the end it really mattered, you mm-hmm. know. Well, like I had an uncle who was, I think her younger brother, and he was great. I loved him. And, but he said, like, do what you like. The money will follow later. Didn't really matter, you know. He worked at the post office. But he's like, "You yeah, have to work at the post office, do what you like, you know. <laughs> so it was more that
0: the art world was something that she couldn't imagine even because she did, it was foreign to her
1: in that way yeah but it wasn't forbidden she didn't you know i was like oh if you didn't want me to be an artist why'd you send me those drawing classes Mm -hmm. at the met you know when i was in high school like so her actions sort of were contradicted the feeling you know that like oh god he wants to be an artist he's not going to make any money you know like there was that, but then there's like, oh yeah, but you sent me the pottery classes in Gernard's village.
0: Glenn, when you were thinking about what she could imagine for you and or not, what were you imagining? You're 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 imagining you in the art world. What do you imagine? I didn't imagine
1: myself in the art world yeah. until I got a grant from the National right. Endowment. Right. And that was into my thirties. Um I always said I was going to be an architect and when I wasn't going to be an architect I told my relatives you know I worked as a proofreader in a law firm, law firm. but like yep. I didn't know anything about being an artist so it didn't become real until you know I it's kind of a joke but I'm kind of serious like mm-hmm. I didn't become an artist till the government sent me a check yeah. you know yes. and said here's a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts you're yeah. an artist you know.
0: you described how even even to this day having to go out into the art circuit and the dinners and the shows you're still shy about it, it's not something you enjoy having to do but it's part of
1: the business of art well, because right? it's not all that right, <laughs> it's the art world is full of amazing people but it's also like you know gy- gypsies, tramps and thieves as the song used to go You know, it's full of like hustlers and drifters and psychopaths too so after a while i guess tiring just want to make your work and not have to deal with the, the the business of being an artist which is the social part of it partially
0: You mentioned that there was a bookstore, Gay Treasures, that you would go into and that you would do research there. It sounds like a very interesting curated collection. If you could tell us more about the scene and the characters and people in that bookstore.
1: It wasn't right on the West Side However near Christopher Street, but right around there. Um, and it was, it maybe even billed itself as a bookstore, but really it was like a high and gay magazine publication store as opposed to, like, Oscar Wilde bookstore, which was a bookstore, book st- proper <laughs> bookstore. Um, but they also had archives where you could basically go through pictures of, you know, organized like a clipping file almost, but, like, little Polaroids and, and organized by categories, you know, Black men was one of the categories, you know. Uh, Bodybuilders, you know. Oh, it's not a pub. You meant something else. (laughs) It was the first, last, and only time that I have ever been in a crowd of people where I was the center of attention without feeling that I was in danger. And I think, actually, gay treasures might have had readings, too. I have Mm -hmm. a memory of seeing... Quentin Crisp read there. Naked Civil Servant was a big thing when I was growing up. And for those who don't know what it is, what, what, quickly, what, briefly, what was oh, uh, Naked Civil it? Servant was his biography of growing up gay in England in the, I guess, 40s, 50s. I remember watching it with my mom on PBS <laughs> when it came out. She didn't say a word <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> it was hilarious. <laughs> probably had a book out, you know? So he came into the reading, but he did it as a performance. So he did this entire kind of talk about his life. And then he literally started over and did the same talk again. It was amazing.
0: Thinking about you talking earlier about, you know, scanning and thinking about going to the Barnes and Noble and should you go into the section, the gay section and making that choice. Eventually you're going to the gay treasures bookstore. So do you remember when you started to feel Free to, to do those things and, and not to be as worried?
1: Oh, probably after college. After Definitely not during college, though I was out during college. I had boyfriends, but after college, it became more normal. Coming back know? to New York. Yeah. yeah. I lived with a boyfriend, you know, um, Upper West Side, <laughs> Upper, Upper West Side, 110th Street and Riverside Drive. So that sort of normalized it a bit more, you know. Um that was the early 80s.
0: And did your mom just think it was a roommate? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Again unspoken. Yeah. Just
1: just yeah. yeah. Cuz I've had straight roommates too, you sure. know, after and yeah. before, so just a roommate.
0: away it was I guess the late 80s or before kind of one of your first big shows but she knew you were on that road but did she ever get to know the full you in the sense that did you had you come out before she died did she did she know the full you in that way no No. I didn't have the
1: big talk but but I think she knew because there was never really I mean I had girlfriends in high school but none she would have approved of or did approve of but why not Oh, white, you know, for (laughs) one. one. But I think, you know, I I remember her saying, probably in response to one of the relatives saying something about me not being married or something, and my mom saying to me, like, oh yeah, your aunt Celestine asked me about your being married, but... I was married, it's not so great, you know? It's not like you're gonna have a happy life if you're married. Like, I married your dad, you know? <laughs> I was like, well. So I think that was her way of saying, like, you don't have to pay attention to all these things, you know? But we never talked about, like, you know? I She, she, she said stuff about being gay and her disapproval, but it wasn't hardcore, you know? Like, she was just worried for me. But it didn't, you know, it wasn't a fire and brimstone, like, kick you out of the house kind of talk. We never had that talk. But also, I think, you know, when she became ill, she died of cancer. Uh, I was telling a friend that relationships with an ill parent often organize around gender, Mm -hmm. but they also organize around sexuality. So they were, you know... I had a brother, but I was the one that was going with her to the doctor visits and, you know, talking to, you know, the nurse. And, you know, so it was very like the gay man was put in the role of like the helper, you know, the caregiver in the way that my brother didn't and wasn't expected to really.
0: When your mind wanders, Glenn, do you find yourself going back to specific, like a few or, or, or even just one or two specific moments in childhood that are the ones that you just keep going back to, to, to retell, hmm. to investigate, to interrogate, to want some answer to?
1: Well... um, I think that you know there's a lot of questions I didn't ask of relatives, and sadly, if you don't ask sooner or later, you can't ask because yeah. they've passed away, so you don't get the direct knowledge. I want to know more, you know, for example, I want to know more about the South, and I have relatives who are still alive that I can ask, but you know it's sort of getting around to it, like what was their childhood like yeah, um but I think. I I remember talking to an aunt, um, I think I was over at her house for dinner, and she was one one of my mother's sisters, and she makes a particularly good fried chicken, and I guess I was eating a lot of it, and she said, not to me, but I was present, oh, he just misses his mom's cooking. So there's a lot of like gaps in my childhood, you know. Also, my mom wasn't really a picture taker. Not the way that everyone takes pictures no. of everything all the time. I want to know more, you know. I know I had nicknames. Uh, Nick Screaming Jay Hawkins was one of my nicknames when I was a kid, and I didn't know what that meant. And certainly by the time I was aware of it as a nickname. Like I was older, so it's oh, we used to call you Screaming Jay Hawkins, but I never knew what that meant. Then I saw the movie Down by Law. Hmm. I think it was Down by Law, and Screaming Jay Hawkins is the guy that's on. I put on Spell on You, and he screams a lot. And it's because I used to like nobody could pick me up except for my mother when I was a baby. Really? So they used to call me Screaming Jay Hawkins. <laughs> But it took me to like adulthood that to, get <laughs> to figure that out. Yeah. Of course, I could have just asked him, yep. but it never occurred to me to ask anyone, what does that mean?
0: I put a spell on you.
1: Because you're mine. Stop the things you do.
0: And people passing, mm. and I find this to be true too in my own family and <clears> life, which is you, there are versions of people that we lose that are in our own consciousness, our own memories. Most people you're around day to day, they didn't know them. So it only is one direction. You have to tell them about them, and they can respond to them as if they might have known them, but they didn't. But then there are people who you are, you can be in their company, and they also remember them. Yeah. So being in the company of people who knew that person who's gone mm-hmm. is, a, is a special.
1: Yeah, Feeling. I remember my, my aunt, she was my grandmother's sister, uh, my aunt Mina. And she, I remember being over at her house, and my mother had already passed away. And we were talking something like she had one of those, you know, very common in black family of a certain generation the coffee table with the glass on it, with the pictures underneath mm-hmm. it, in the living room. And there was a picture of my mother. And I was looking at it and talking to my aunt Mina, and my aunt Mina saying i me saying something about forgetting people or something, and my aunt Mina saying about my mother, it seems like the good people you never forget mm. about my mother, which mm-hmm. makes me a little weepy right now, but
0: yeah, yeah just comesslick. <laughs> <that> <laughs>
1: your memories of people, you know, continue and they continue with other people as well if the person was worthy of remembering, I guess, you know.
0: things that I am captivated by about you I, you, I shared before that I love Whitman, is that in 2015, you were commissioned by the New School to uh, essentially create a beautiful installation using Whitman's words from Leaves of Grass in sort of a violet neon scroll around mm-hmm. one of their big event spaces, like their event cafe, <clears throat> and it made an impression on me, you actually are the first person I've been with uh, who's, who's really lived inside of his words, mm-hmm. so... Um, I'd like to ask you about your relationship to him, but maybe you can talk about that in the context of the question I'm going to ask, which is, I'm going to read something and then ask you something, which is in Song of Myself, he writes these words. I bequeath myself to the dirt, to grow from the grass I love. If you want me again, look for me under your boot soles. You will hardly know who I am or what I mean, but I shall be good health to you nevertheless, and filter and fiber your blood. Failing to fetch me at first, keep encouraged. Missing me one place, search another. I stop somewhere, waiting for you. Hmm. And those words are are so powerful and they've always remained with me. And in the context of a show about growing up and hometowns and place and time, I like to ask each person I speak with sort of 50, 100, 200 years from now, the way that Walt Whitman was thinking about the future too in the context of his past, if there's someone who comes along in the future and discovers a Glenn Ligon painting or a piece of art and wants to know you, wants to commune with you, where would you tell them to look for you <laughs> in New York to say, if you want to know me or get a sense of me or commune with me, go to this spot or, or series
1: of spots because
0: that's where you'll get a sense of me that you may not get from anything
1: else. Ooh, that's a hard one. Uh, I would say, Probably the forest houses, because they were so much of part of my formative year. Uh, the temporary housing that is the forest houses, <laughs> which I imagine will still be there 50, 100 years from now, uh, as public housing is such a dire need in this city that you can't even imagine. Mm-hmm. I know they do like tear down public housing, but I can't even imagine it. Uh, So imagining that place is still there, you'll know something about what it was like to be me at that moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, Walden as a school had merged itself into lots of different other schools and the building isn't there anymore. So that's not really a landmark. But um, I would actually maybe point them to a text too. I wrote... um, a text for a show um, called Greater New York and it was a basically a biography in the form of short text about every place I'd lived in New York mm. and it's called a, History, a Brief History of Housing in New York City um, so if that's still around <laughs> as a chapbook but maybe as a work, too, because it was actually silkscreened on the walls of PS1 Museum. Uh, that's a good marker of kind of who I was, you know, what mm-hmm. I was thinking about, and my intersection with the city, too, because it literally is going through, in chronological order, all the places I've Lived in New York up to date, so I should do an expanded version because I need to update it soon as I'm moving to Brooklyn eventually. <laughs> um, but yeah, and the kind of emotional tone of those places. Because um, you don't, you sort of get them from the buildings in a way because the buildings are part of a neighborhood, but neighborhoods change drastically. So one sense of the city as as it appeared to someone who lived there at a particular time uh, is very different, you know. Than like I can't imagine what New York's going to be like in fifty years. It's very hard to imagine.
0: And with Whitman in particular, just to close here, in spending time and kind of in, in living inside of his words and thinking about the kind of New York that he lived in, you know, Leaves of Grass in some ways is is a celebration of the the density of the city and wanting to be one of many. But one thing that's come through, I think, in speaking with you as an artist like Walt, but but is that your journey, I wonder if you would say it's fair to say, seems to also have been more of an interior journey. It's something that's also inside, uh, inside spaces, but also the internal dialogue of growing up, which is different mm. than the extrovert, I'm Walt women, you know, have a beer with me, ride the, tri- ride the you know, omnibus with me. He was absorbing, getting the energy from others, and that was coming. Yours seems to be much more of an internal New York, hmm. which I think is an interesting um, point about the city as well. You can be both things in New York.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it can be an incredibly lonely <laughs> city, mm-hmm. uh, it's a city where you can be alone in the multitude, you know I mean that's almost a cliche a cliche of New York, but I think it is actually in my experience true. New Yorkers lack imagination because to live in New York is to feel like you've lived everywhere because everything comes here <laughs> uh, so I do have that feeling of you know this sort of aloneness as. Experience of the city as a loner, but also the experience of the city as like everything is here somehow. Everything's come here, everything's been through here. Mm-hmm. So those two senses of the city kind of exist simultaneously. And, you know, I do lack imagination as much as I, you know, I say I'm tired of New York, I, you know, could live somewhere else it's been 60 years here i am you know Mm -hmm. so i think i am a new yorker in that sense like there's some deep pull here as much as the city has changed over my lifetime there's some extraordinary hold it has on me you know that keeps me here maybe lack of imagination can't imagine living anywhere else you know um but yeah there is something about New York as a place that has kept me. You
0: know? And I hope that gravitational force mm-hmm. remains strong. Mm-hmm. As a New Yorker, I admire the New Yorker, <laughs> Glenn Glidon. Thank you so much for taking me to your hometown. Uh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, I really fun. enjoyed it. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Your Hometown, where the local is the epic. This is a Kevin Burke production. Visit yourhometown.org to subscribe to the podcast and our various social media channels. And wherever you're listening, please drop us a review. Every star helps. For information on live events that we do around the show, visit our New York City series page on the Museum of the City of New York's website at mcny.org slash yourhometown hyphen podcast. Now let me thank the team that works with me on Your Hometown, beginning with our executive producer, Robert Krolwich, our editor and sound designer, Otis Streeter, our composer and performer, Sterling Steffen, and our researchers, Shaquille Khan and Jamaris Perez. I also want to thank Tunshere Longay, Nick Gregg, and Charlotte Yu for the vivid illustrations that have given our show another dimension. Our social media manager is Michaela Watkins, and our website and branding design is by Tama Creative. A special thanks to our partners this season, the Museum of the City of New York, our lead funder, the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, and all our financial supporters for their commitment to this series. It's because of them that we're able to bring this series to you. Thanks so much for taking this ride with me. And remember, everyone's from someplace, and everywhere is somewhere.